Okay, in this next series, this is going to be part of the Fido series, and we're kind of going back to basics here uh, as a developmental exercise in determining metabolic rates and basic physiological principles of plant uptake for the Fido book. So today we're going to be talking about the dual role of sunlight, energy, and information. And this is from Introduction to Plant Physiology, 4th edition, and I will make sure to put my references on the website. So if you're interested, take a look at that. So sunlight satisfies two very important needs of biological organisms, energy and information. On the one hand, radiant energy from the sun maintains the planet's surface temperature in a range suitable for life, and through the process of photosynthesis, is the ultimate source of energy that sustains most life in our biosphere. Radiation, primarily in the form of light, also provides critical information about the environment, information that is used by plants to regulate movement, trigger developmental events, and mark the passage of time. The importance of light in the life of green plants is reflected in the study of photobiology, which encompasses not only phenomena such as photosynthesis, which reflects the role of sunlight as an energy source, but also phenomena such as photomorphogenesis and photoperiodism, where sunlight provides the necessary information for proper plant development and the measurement of day length, respectively. In order to fully appreciate the pervasive importance of light to plants, it's necessary to understand something of the physical nature of light and the molecules with which light interacts in plants. In this chapter, we will explore the physical nature of light and how light interacts with matter, discuss some of the terminology used in describing light and methods for measuring it, discuss briefly the characteristics of light in natural environments of plants, and review the principal pigments and pigment systems found in plants. The various ways in which light is used by plants to power photosynthesis and regulate development will be discussed throughout many of the subsequent chapters. The physical nature of light. Light is electromagnetic energy which exists in two forms. What is light? As Johnson recognized more than 200 years ago, we all know what light is, but it's not easy to tell what it is. The simplest answer is that light is a form of radiant energy, a narrow band of energy within the continuous electromagnetic spectrum of radiation emitted by the sun. The term light describes that portion of the electromagnetic spectrum that causes the physiological sensation of vision in humans. In other words, light is defined by the range of wavelengths between 400 and approximately 700 nanometers capable of stimulating the receptors located in the retina of the human eye. Strictly speaking, those regions of the spectrum we perceive as red, green, or blue are called light, whereas the ultraviolet or infrared regions of the spectrum, which our eyes cannot detect, although they may have significant biological effects, are referred to as ultraviolet or infrared radiation, respectively. While the following discussion will focus on light, it is understood that the principles involved apply to radiant energy in the broader sense. Like other forms of energy, light is a bit of an enigma and it's difficult to define. It's more easily described not by what it is, but how it interacts with matter. Physicists of the late 19th century and early 20th centuries resolved that light has attributes of both continuous waves and discrete particles. Both of these attributes are important in understanding the biological role of light. Light can be characterized as a wave phenomenon. The propagation of light through space is characterized by regular and repetitive changes, or waves, in its electrical and magnetic properties. Electromagnetic radiation actually consists of two waves, one electrical and one magnetic, that oscillate at 90 degrees to each other and to the direction of propagation. The wave properties of light may be characterized by either wavelength or frequency. The distance in space between wave crests is known as the wavelength and is represented by the Greek letter lambda. Biologists commonly express wavelengths in units of nanometers, where one nanometer is 10 to the negative ninth meter. Frequency, represented by the Greek letter nus, or v, is the number of wave crests or cycles passing a point in space in one second. Frequency is thus related to wavelength in the following way, where nus is equal to the constant speed of light over lambda, where speed of light is 3 times 8 raised to the 8th power meters per second. Biologists most commonly use wavelengths to describe light and other forms of radiation, although frequency is useful in certain situations. Wavelengths of primary interest to photobiologists fall into three distinct ranges, 
ultraviolet, visible, and infrared. Light can be characterized as a stream of discrete particles. When light is emitted from a source or interacts with matter, it behaves as though its energy is divided into discrete units or particles called photons. The energy carried by a photon is called a quantum, or plural quanta, to reflect the fact that energy can be quantized, that is, it can be divided into multiple units. The energy carried by a photon, EQ, is related to wavelength and frequency in accordance with the following relationship. EQ is equal to HC over lambda, which is equal to H times nu. Where H is a proportionality constant called Planck's constant, the value of H is 6.62 times 10 to the negative 34th joule second per photon, and accordingly, the quantum energy of radiation is inversely proportional to its wavelength or directly proportional to its frequency. The symbol HV or HNU is commonly used to represent a photon in figures and diagrams. Since both H and C are constants, the energy of a photon is easily calculated for any wavelength of interest. The following example illustrates a calculation of the energy content of red light with a representative wavelength of 660 nanometers. EQ is equal to 6.62 times 10 to the negative 34th joule second per photon times 3.8, 3 times 10 to the eighth meters per second over 6.6 .6 times 10 to the negative second meters, and solving for EQ results in 3.01 times 10 to the negative 19 joules per photon. This will be different for each type of light, so for blue light, for example, with a representative wavelength of 435 nanometers, the EQ value is 4.56 times 10 to the negative 19th joule per photon. As the above numbers indicate, the energy content of a single photon is a very small number. However, the Einstein-Stark law of photochemical equivalence states that one photon can interact with only one electron. Thus, in any irreversible photochemical reaction, the energy of one photon may be used to convert one molecule of reactant A to one molecule of product B, where A plus H nu results in B. Since one mole of any substance contains Avogadro's number n of molecules, where n is equal to 6.023 times 10 to the 23rd molecules per mole, to convert one mole of reactant A to one mole of product B would require n number of photons. Thus, for practical purposes, it's convenient to multiply the energy of a single photon by Avogadro's number, which gives the value of energy for a mole of photons. The energy carried by a mole of photons of red light, for example, is 181,292 joules per mole, or 181 kilojoules per mole. The energy carried by a mole of photons of blue light is correspondingly 274 kilojoules per mole. The concept of a mole of photons is more useful than dealing with individual photons. For example, as will become apparent in the following section, the law of photochemical equivalence states that a mole of photons of a particular wavelength would be required to excite a mole of pigment molecules. Light energy can interact with matter. For light to be used by plants, it must first be absorbed. The absorption of light by any molecule is a photophysical event involving internal electronic transition. The Gotthaus-Draper principle tells us that only light that is absorbed can be active in photochemical processes. In contrast to photophysical events, photochemistry refers to any chemical reaction which utilizes absorbed light to convert reactants to products, that is, any light-dependent reaction. Therefore, any photobiological phenomenon requires the participation of a molecule that absorbs light. Such a molecule may be defined as a pigment. Plants contain a variety of pigments that are prominent visual features and important physiological components of virtually all plants. The characteristic green color of leaves, for example, is due to a family of pigments known as chlorophylls. Chlorophyll absorbs the light energy used in photosynthesis. The pleasing colors of floral petals are due to the anthrocyanin pigments that serve to attract insects as pollen vectors. Other pigments, such as phytochrome, are present in quantities too small to be visible, but nonetheless serve important roles in plant morph morphogenesis. These and other important plant pigments will be described later in this chapter.
So what actually happens when a pigment molecule absorbs light? Absorption of light by a pigment molecule is a rapid photophysical electronic event occurring within a femtosecond. In accordance with the first law of thermodynamics, the energy of an absorbed photon is transferred to an electron in the pigment molecule during that extremely short time period. The energy of an electron is thus elevated from a low energy level, the ground state, to a higher energy level known as the excited or singlet state. This change in energy level is illustrated graphically in figure 6.3, which is available on page 96. Like photons, the energy states of electrons are also quantized. That is, an electron can exist in only one of a series of discrete energy levels. A photon can be absorbed only if its energy content matches the energy required to raise the energy of the electron to one of the higher allowable energy states. In the same way that quanta cannot be subdivided, electrons cannot be partially excited. Although, according to the Einstein-Stark law of photochemical equivalence, a single photon can excite only one electron, complex pigment molecules such as chlorophyll will have many different electrons, each of which may absorb a photon of a different energy level, and consequently, a different wavelength. Moreover, each singlet excited state in which an electron may exist may be subdivided into a variety of smaller but discrete internal energy levels called vibrational and rotational levels. This broadens even further the number of photons that may be absorbed. Pigment molecules such as chlorophyll, when exposed to white light, will thus exhibit many different excited states at one time. An excited molecule has a very short lifetime, on the order of a nanosecond or 10 to the negative 9 seconds. And in the absence of any chemical interaction with other molecules in its environment, it must rid itself of any excess energy and return to the ground state. Dissipation of excess energy may be accomplished in several ways. 1. Thermal deactivation occurs when a molecule loses excitation energy as heat. The electron will very quickly drop or relax to the lowest excited singlet state. The excess energy is given off as heat to its environment. If the electron then returns to the ground state, that energy will also be dissipated as heat. Fluorescence is the emission of a photon of light as an electron relaxes from the first singlet excited to the ground state. Since the rate of relaxation through fluorescence is much slower than the rate of relaxation through thermal deactivation, Fluorescence emission occurs only as a consequence of relaxation from the first excited singlet state. Consequently, the emitted photon has a lower energy content and, in accordance with equation 6.1, a longer wavelength than the exciting photon. In the case of the photosynthetic pigment chlorophyll, for example, peak fluorescent emission falls to the long wavelength side of the red absorption band. This is true regardless of whether the pigment was excited with blue light at 450 nanometers or 262 kilojoules per mole, or red light at 660 nanometers or 181 kilojoules per mole. For pigments such as chlorophyll in solution, a return to the ground state by emission of red light is often the only available option. Energy may be transferred between pigment molecules by what is known as inductive resonance or radiationless transfer. Such transfers will occur with high frequency but require that the pigment molecules are very close together and that the fluorescent emission band of the donor molecule overlaps the absorption band of the recipient. Inductive resonance accounts for much of the transfer of energy between pigment molecules in the chloroplast. The molecule may revert to another type of excited state called the triplet state. The difference between singlet and triplet states related to the spin of the valence electrons is not so important here. It is sufficient to know that the triplet state is more stable than the singlet state, and it is considered a metastable state. The longer lifetime of the metastable triplet state, on the order of 10 to the negative 3 seconds, is sufficient to allow for photochemical reactions to occur. This could take the form of an oxidation reaction, in which the energetic electron is actually given up to an acceptor molecule. When this occurs, the pigment is said to be photooxidized, and the acceptor molecule becomes reduced. How does one illustrate the efficiency of light absorption and its physiological effects? Figure 6.4b illustrates a graph whereby the absorption of light by a pigment, in this case chlorophyll, measured as relative absorptions, is plotted as a function of wavelength. 
The resulting graph is known as the absorption spectrum, and which emphasizes the correspondence between a possible excitation state of a molecule and the principal bands in the absorption spectrum. The energy level diagram in figure 6.3b represents, in a broad sense, absorption of light by chlorophyll. In this case, lambda 1 would represent red light and lambda 2 would represent blue light. An absorption spectrum is, in effect, a probability statement. The height of the absorption curve, or width, at any given wavelength reflects the probability by which light of that energy level will be absorbed. More importantly, an absorption spectrum is like a fingerprint of the molecule. Every light-absorbing molecule has a unique absorption spectrum that is often key to its identification. We use this for phosphine identification in Venus in that article from uh, the terraforming class. The pattern of absorption spectrum for each variation generally resembles that of figures shown in figure 6.4b, yet each variation of chlorophyll differs with respect to the precise wavelength at which maximum absorption occurs. Because light must first be absorbed in order to be affected in a physiological process, it follows that there must be a pigment that absorbs the effect of light. One of the first tasks facing a photobiologist when studying a light-dependent response is to identify the responsible pigment. One important piece of information is called an action spectrum. An action spectrum is a graph that shows the effectiveness of light in inducing a particular process plotted as a function of wavelength. The underlying assumption is that light most efficiently absorbed by the responsible pigment will also be the most effective in driving the response. In other words, the action spectrum for a light-dependent response should closely resemble the absorption spectrum of the pigment or pigments that absorb the effect of light. A comparison of an action spectrum with the absorption spectra of a suspected pigment can therefore provide useful clues to the identity of the pigment responsible for a photosensitive process. As an example, a typical action spectrum for photosynthesis in a green plant is shown in figure 6.4a. It is compared with the absorption spectrum for a leaf extract that contains primarily chlorophyll and some carotenoid. carotenoid. Note that the action spectrum has pronounced peaks in the red and blue regions of the spectrum and that these action maxima correspond to the absorption maxima, maxima of chlorophyll. This is part of the evidence that identifies the role for chlorophyll in photosynthesis. Accurate measurement of light is important in photobiology. Given the manifold ways in which light can influence the physiology and development of plants, it should not be too surprising that proper measurement and description of light and light sources has become a significant component of many laboratory and field studies. Many experiments are now conducted in controlled environment rooms or chambers that allow the researchers to control light, temperature, and humidity. To permit others to interpret the experiments or repeat them in their own laboratories, it's essential that light sources and conditions be fully and accurately described. The spectral distribution of light emitted from fluorescent lamps is very different from that emitted from tungsten lamps or from natural skylight. Because of these and many other factors, each light source may have demonstrably different effects on plant development and behavior. Even natural light changes in quality from dawn through midday to dusk, or between shady and sunny habitats, or cloudy and open skies. Understanding photobiology thus requires an understanding of how light is measured and what those measurements mean. Also required is a consistent terminology that is understood by everyone working in the field. There are three parameters of primary concern when describing light. The first is light quantity, how much light has the plant received. The second is composition of light with respect to wavelengths known as light quality, spectral composition, or spectral energy distribution. The third factor is timing. What are the duration and periodicity of the light treatment? The measure of light quantity most widely accepted by plant photobiologists is based on the concept of fluorescence. Oops, fluence. Fluence is defined as the quantity of radiant energy falling on a small sphere divided by the cross-section of the sphere itself. Since light is a form of energy that can be emitted or absorbed as discrete packet or photons, Fluence can be expressed in terms of either the number of photons, or quanta, in moles or mole, or the amount of energy in joules, in J. Photon fluence, where units equals mole per meter squared, refers to the total number of photons incident on the sphere, while energy fluence, in joules per meter squared, 
refers to the total amount of energy incident on the sphere. The corresponding rate terms are photo, photon fluorescence rate, energy fluorescence rate, and the term irradiance is frequently used interchangeably with energy fluence rate, although in principle the two are not equivalent. Irradiance refers to the flux of energy on a flat surface rather than on a sphere. Many instruments for measuring radiation actually measure total energy, including energy outside the visible portion of the spectrum, such as infrared, which is not directly relevant to photobiological processes. In order to avoid such complications, instruments are now commercially available that are limited to that portion of the spectrum between 400 nanometers and 700 nanometers. This range of light is broadly defined as photosynthetically active radiation, thus photon fluence rates expressed as mole photons, meter squared, second squared, par, or energy fluence rates expressed as watts per meter squared par, are widely accepted for routine laboratory work in plant photobiology. The only serious limitation to par measurements is that they exclude light in the 700 to 750 nanometer range, light which, although inactive in higher plant photosynthesis, plays a significant role in regulating plant development. So this is important because when we start designing plant experiments as part of a pilot study, we'll need to define the light according to accurate measurements for photobiology. So the reason that we're going through this is to not only worry about the plant and soil measurements of how we're measuring uptake and remediation values, but also how we're describing pilot studies and what some of the complex environmental factors that will be influencing metabolism are and how to measure them. So the goal of this is to be able to identify a comprehensive framework for establishing the experiment repeating the experiment, and having quantifiable and verifiable conditions for our greenhouse cloning or our genetic engineering requirements. So just a little addition here. The term light quality refers to the spectral composition and is usually defined by an emission or an incidence spectrum. SED is measured with a spectroradiometer, an instrument capable of measuring fluence rate over narrow wavelength bands. Depending on the instrument, either spectral photon fluence rates or spectral energy fluence rates, plotted against the wavelength. In practice, spectral radiometers are also equipped with flat surface detectors that measure spectral irradiance. SED can vary depending on the nature of light source and a number of other factors. The SED of natural sunlight, for example, can vary depending on the quality of the atmosphere, cloud cover, and the time of day. The set of artificial sources, such as incandescent and fluorescent lamps, are significantly different from natural light. Fluorescent light has a relatively high emission in the blue, but drops off sharply in the red. Incandescent light, on the other hand, contains relatively little blue light, but high emissions in the far red and infrared. The Natural Radiation Environment a relatively small proportion of the radiation originating in the sun reaches the Earth's atmosphere and even less actually reaches the surface. However, both the quantity and spectral distribution of radiant energy that reaches or fails to reach Earth may have a significant impact on the physiology of the plant. As well, radiant energy is central to several problems of more immediate and profound consequences for man. Significant amounts of infrared radiation are absorbed by water vapor and carbon dioxide and other gases present in the Earth's atmosphere, giving rise to a phenomenon known as the greenhouse effect. Although public awareness of the greenhouse effect has increased markedly in recent years, it is not a phenomenon restricted to the late 20th century. Indeed, the greenhouse effect has been with us since the beginnings of life on Earth. Without it, life as we know would not be possible. Infrared radiation is of low frequency or long wavelength, and therefore low energy. Its principal effect is to increase vibrational activity in molecules, that is, heat. Absorption of infrared by atmospheric water vapor and carbon dioxide creates a thermal blanket that helps to prevent extreme variations in temperature, such as those that occur on the lunar surface, where these gases are absent. Similar, although less extreme, temperature variations are characteristic of dry, desert regions on Earth where high daytime temperatures alternate with very cool nights. Public concern about the greenhouse effect rises from evidence that, since the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution, our prodigious consumption of fossil fuels 
has contributed to a steady increase in atmospheric carbon dioxide and other so-called greenhouse gases. Many believe that continued release of carbon dioxide will lead to greater heat retention in the atmosphere and global warming. This could result in partial melting of polar ice caps with extensive flooding of low-lying land areas and major shifts in plant biodiversity and agricultural productivity. A scenario commonly proposed is that higher carbon dioxide levels will stimulate photosynthesis and increase the amount of plant material on Earth. However, this is an overly simplistic view of the effects of carbon dioxide concentrations on photosynthesis. Increases in both global temperatures and global CO2 concentrations can have negative effects on photosynthetic rates. At the other end of the spectrum, ultraviolet radiation is characterized by short wavelengths, high frequency, and high energy levels. Absorption of ultraviolet radiation creates highly reactive molecules, often causing the ejection of electrons or ionization of the molecule. Such ionizations usually have deleterious effects on organisms. A principal action of UVC, about 254 nanometers for example, is to induce thiamine dimers, hence mutation, in deoxyribonucleic acid. So just as a quick note, I posted that solar eudicaria experience, and I think that this is the effect of that. So a UVC contact with my skin and with some of the chemicals that I've been exposed to has created a mutation in the enzyme responsible for maintaining homogeneity in my skin temperature or acidity, um, which results in hives. So it's an immune reaction, right? Uh, in the natural environment, UV-induced mutation is not normally a major problem because little far ultraviolet radiation reaches the surface. Virtually all of the UVC and most of the UVB is absorbed by ozone, unless you have a hole in the ozone, and aerosols, or dispersed particles of solids or liquids in the stratosphere. If, however, the atmospheric ozone concentration were to be lowered, there would be an increased potential for harmful effects to all organisms. In recent years, just such a depletion of the stratospheric ozone layer leading to increases in UVB radiation reaching the Earth's surface has become a matter of some concern. Data compiled over the past two decades have revealed that approximately one-half of the plant species studied are adversely affected by elevated UVB radiation. Interesting. It is perhaps not surprising that plants most sensitive to UVB radiation are those native to lower elevations where UVB fluxes are normally low. With respect to both frequency and energy level, visible light falls between UV and infrared radiation. Absorption of visible light raises the energy level of valence electrons of the absorbing molecule and thus has the potential for initiating useful photochemical reactions. Moreover, the fluence rate and spectral quality of visible light are constantly changing, often predictably, throughout the day or the season. These variations convey information about the environment, information that the plant can use to its advantage. The two most significant changes in visible light on a daily basis are seen in the fluence rate and in spectral distribution. Typically at midday under full sun, the fluence rate approaches 2,000 micromoles per second, per meter squared second. At twilight, just before the sun sets below the horizon, the fluence rate will have dropped to the order of 10 micromole meter second, or less. During a period known as dusk, fluence rate falls rapidly by as much as one order of magnitude every 10 minutes. Falling light levels at the end of the day are accompanied by shifts in spectral quality. Normal daylight consists of direct sunlight and diffuse skylight. Diffuse skylight is enriched with blue wavelengths because the shorter wavelengths are preferentially scattered by moisture droplets, dust, and other components of the atmosphere. Consequently, normal daylight is enriched with blue, blue skies. At twilight, often defined as a solar elevation of 10 degrees or less from the horizon, a combination of scattering and refraction of the sun's rays as they enter the Earth's atmosphere at low angles enriches the light with longer red and far-red wavelengths. This is because, at twilight, the path traversed by sunlight through the atmosphere to an observer on Earth may be up to 50 times longer than when it is up directly overhead. Much of the violet and blue light is thus scattered out of the line of sight, leaving predominantly the longer red and orange to reach the observer. Atmospheric factors such as clouds and air pollution can also influence the spectral distribution of sunlight. 
cloud cover reduces irradiance and increases the proportion of scattered or blue light. Airborne pollutants will cause scattering, but will also absorb certain wavelengths. Plants growing under a canopy must cope with severe reduction in red and blue light as it is filtered through the chlorophyll-containing leaves above or with sun flex. Spots of direct sunlight that suddenly appear through an opening in the canopy. These sudden changes in irradiance may have significant impact on the photosynthetic capacity of a plant. It is clear that plants are exposed to an ever-changing light environment. Many of these changes, such as cloud cover, are unpredictable, but others, such as daily changes in fluence rate and spectral energy distribution, occur with great regularity. The more regular changes convey precise information about the momentary status of the environment as well as impending changes. It is perhaps not surprising that plants have evolved sophisticated means for interpreting this matter as information as a matter of survival. Photoreceptors absorb light for use in physiological processes. Photoreceptors are defined as pigment molecules that process the energy and informational content of light into a form that can be used by the plant. A pigment that contains protein as an integral part of the molecule is known as a chromoprotein. Thus, photoreceptors are typically chromoproteins. The chromophore, or Greek from phoros or bearing, is that portion of the chromoprotein molecule responsible for absorbing light and hence color. The protein portion of a chromoprotein molecule is called the apoprotein. A complete molecule, or holochrome, consists of the chromophore plus the protein. The principal photoreceptors found in plants are described here. Their roles in various physiological processes will be discussed in later chapters in more detail. Chlorophylls are primarily responsible for harvesting light energy for photosynthesis. As noted earlier, chlorophyll is the pigment primarily responsible for harvesting light energy used in photosynthesis. The chlorophyll molecule consists of two parts, a porphyrin head and long hydrocarbon or phytal tail. A porphyrin is a cyclic tetrapyrrole made up of four nitrogen-containing pyrrole rings arranged in a cyclic fashion. Porphyrins are ubiquitous to living organisms and include a heme group found in mammalian hemoglobin and the photosynthetic and respiratory pigments, cytochromes. Esterified to ring 4 of the porphyrin in chlorophyll is a 20-carbon alcohol, phytal. This long liquid-soluble hydrocarbon tail is a derivative of the 5-carbon isoprene. Isoprene is the precursor to a variety of important molecules, including other pigments, the carotenes, hormones, the gibberellins, and steroids. Completing the chlorophyll molecule is a magnesium ion, chelated to the four nitrogen atoms in the center of the ring. Loss of the magnesium ion from chlorophyll results in the formation of a non-green product, pheophyton. Pheophyton is readily formed during extraction under acidic conditions, but small amounts are also found naturally in the chloroplast where it serves as an early electron acceptor. Four species of chlorophyll, designated chlorophyll A, B, C, and D, are known. The chemical structure of chlorophyll A, the primary photosynthetic pigment in all higher plants, algae, and the cyanobacteria, is shown in figure 6.7. Chlorophyll B is similar, except that the formyl group, that's the CHO group, substitutes for the methyl group on ring 2. Chlorophyll B is found in virtually all higher plants and green algae, although viable mutants deficient of chlorophyll B are known. The principal difference between chlorophyll A and chlorophyll C, found in the diatoms, dinoflagellates, and brown algae, is that chlorophyll C lacks the phytol tail. Finally, chlorophyll D, found only in the red algae, is similar to chlorophyll A, except that the O CHO group replaces the CH double bond CH2 group on ring 1. When grown in the dark, angiosperm seedlings do not accumulate chlorophyll. Their yellow color is primarily due to the presence of carotenoids. Dark grown seedlings do, however, accumulate significant amounts of protochlorophyll A, the immediate precursor to chlorophyll A. The chemical structure of protochlorophyll differs from chlorophyll only by the presence of a double bond between carbons 7 and 8 in ring 4. The reduction of this bond is catalyzed by the enzyme NADPH, protochlorophyll oxidoreductase.
Um, you guys will remember from the Krebs cycle that NADPH is the same one that splits the phosphorus bonds in our energy products as well. In angiosperms, this reaction requires light, but in gymnosperms and most algae chlorophylls can be synthesized in the dark. There is a general consensus among investigators that chlorophyll B is synthesized from chlorophyll A. Note that the respective chlorophylls exhibit generally a similar shape to their absorption spectra in organic solvents, but exhibit or absorption maxima at distinctly different wavelengths in both the blue and red regions of the spectrum. These shifts in the absorption maxima illustrate that subtle chemical changes in the porphyrin ring of chlorophyll have significant effects on the absorption properties of this pigment. This is evidence that it is the porphyrin ring of chlorophyll that actually absorbs the light and not the phytol tail. Note also, and actually I think there's a disease in humans called porphyria, and that I think is named because porphyrin, that porphyrin ring that we're talking about in plants as part of a photosynthetic process, is also present in humans. So when porphyria ensues, um, you may actually be getting some biochemical effects that are interfering with the Krebs cycle in, or the Calvin cycle in humans, which is interesting. I don't know about that, I'm just putting it together. But the strong absorbance in blue and red and transmittance in the green is what gives chlorophyll its characteristic green color. The presence of the long hydrocarbon phytol exerts a dominant effect on the solubility of chlorophyll, rendering it virtually insoluble in water. In the plant, chlorophyll is found exclusively in the lipid domain of the chloroplast membranes where it forms non-covalent associations with hydrophobic proteins. Only an extremely small percentage of the chlorophyll found in vivo is ever free chlorophyll, that is, not bound to proteins. The absorption spectra of these chlorophyll protein complexes are markedly different from that of free pigment in solution. For example, Chlorophyll A protein absorbs primarily in the region of 675 nanometers as opposed to 663 nanometers for chlorophyll A and acetone. Conjugation of chlorophylls with protein in the membrane is important for three reasons. One, it helps to maintain the pigment molecules in the precise relationship required for efficient absorption and energy transfer. A second reason is that it provides each pigment with a unique environment that in turn gives each molecule a slightly different absorption maximum. These slight absorbent differences are important factors in the orderly transfer of energy through the pigment bed toward the reaction center where photochemical conversion actually occurs. Third, the presence of excess free chlorophyll would photosynthesize, I'm sorry, photosensitize plants and would lead to the destruction of the chloroplast structure. Chlorophyll, in the unbound state, is less efficient in photosynthetic inductive energy transfer, but reacts more efficiently with O2 to generate highly dangerous and reactive oxygen species, such as oxygen-free radicals, hydroxyl radicals, and singlet oxygen. These reactive oxygen species may destroy the chloroplast. Although light energy is essential for life, clearly it can be a very dangerous form of energy, especially in an aerobic environment. Later, we'll examine the mechanisms that photosynthetic organisms have involved to protect themselves against this potential danger. Phycobilins serve as accessory light-harvesting pigments in red algae and cyanobacteria. Phycobilins are straight-chain or open-chain tetrapyral pigment molecules present in eukaryotic red algae and prokaryotic cyanobacteria. The prefix phyco designates pigments of algal origin. Four phycobilins are known. Three of these are evolved in photosynthesis, and the fourth, phytochromobilin, is an important photoreceptor that regulates various aspects of growth and development. The three photosynthetic phycobilins are phycoerythrin, also known as phycoerythroblin, phycocyanin, or phycocyanoblin, and allophycocyanin, or allophycocyanoblin. In addition to the open-chain tetrapyrrole and the phycobilin pigments differ from the chlorophyll in that the tetrapyrrole group is covalently linked with a protein that forms a part of the molecule. In the cell, phycobilin proteins are organized into large macromolecular complexes called phycobilisomes. 
But we do have a protein called bilirubin in the liver, produced by the liver from the breakdown of red blood cells. And I wonder if it is similar to the phycobilosomes because of the color change from the heme transfer. So like when you have hepatitis and you turn yellow, um, I wonder if that's a, a connected property of the protein. With the exception of phytochromobilin, phycobilin pigments are not found in higher plants, but occur exclusively in cyanobacteria and the red algae rhodophyta, where they assume a light harvesting function in photosynthesis. Phycobilins, and in particular phycoerythrin, are useful as light harvesters for photosynthesis because they absorb light energy in the green region of the visible spectrum where chlorophyll does not absorb. The red algae, for example, appear almost black because the chlorophyll and phycoerythrin together absorb almost all of the visible radiation for use in photosynthesis. Now that's interesting. And it does kind of go against what we were learning in SNL about how cyanobacteria are the only demonstrated respirating, like the first and only demonstrated respirating form of life, because now we have these red algae that are able to absorb on the entire spectrum. So the whole visible radiation for use in photosynthesis. I would assume that that also generates oxygen as a waste product, but we will, we will read on to find out. The fourth phycobilly protein of particular significance to higher plants is the phytochrome, a receptor that plays an important role in many photomorphogenic phenomenon. Its chromophore structure and absorption spectrum are similar to that of allophycocyanin. Phytochrome, literally plant pigment, is unique because it exists in two forms that are photoreversible. Form P660 absorbs maximally at, maximally at 660 nanometers. However, absorption of 660 nanometer light converts the pigment to a second far red absorbing form, P735. Absorption of far red light by PFR or P735 converts it back to the red absorbing form. PFR is believed to be an active form of pigment that is capable of initiating a wide range of morphogenic responses. Cytochrome will be discussed more in more detail in chapter 22. So cytochrome is an important enzyme for us for a couple reasons. Um, phytochrome, well, yeah. So cytochrome P56, I believe, is going to be the main functional enzyme that allows for chelation of metals. Uh, so we're going to be interested in that. But I think I may be confusing cytochrome with phytochrome. So we'll, we'll carry on. Carotenoids account for the autumn colors. Carotenoids comprise a family of orange and yellow pigments present in most photosynthetic organisms. Found in large quantity in the roots of carrot and tomato fruit, carotenoid pigments are also prominent in green leaves. In the fall of the year, the chlorophyll pigments are degraded and the more stable carotenoid pigments account for the brilliant orange and yellow colors so characteristic of autumn foliage. Carotenoid pigments are C40 terpenoids biosynthetically derived from the isoprenoid pathway described in chapter 19. We'll get there. Because the carotenoids are predominantly hydrocarbons, they are lipid-soluble and found either in the chloroplast membranes or in specialized plastids called chromoplasts. The concentrations of pigments in chromoplasts may reach very high levels to the extent that the pigment actually forms crystals. Isn't that fantastic? That light can cause fat to crystallize? Wonderful. The carotenoid family of pigments include carotenes and xanthophiles. Carotenes are predominantly orange or red-orange pigments. Beta-carotene is the major carotenoid in algae and higher plants. Note that in beta-carotene and alpha-carotene, a minor form, both ends of the molecule are cyclized. Other forms, such as gamma-carotene, found in green photosynthetic bacteria, have only one end cyclized. Lycopene, the principal pigment of tomato fruit, has both ends open. The yellow carotenoids, xanthophiles, are oxygenated carotene. Lutein and zeaxanthin, for example, are hydroxylated forms of alpha-carotene and beta-carotene, respectively. Like chlorophyll, beta-carotene is in the chloroplasts, 
and complex with proteins. Beta-carotene, which absorbs strongly in the blue region of the visible spectrum, is known to quench both the triplet-excited chlorophyll as well as the highly reactive singlet-excited oxygen, which can be generated by the reaction of triplet chlor chlorophyll with ground-state oxygen. Thus, beta-carotene protects chlorophyll from photooxidation. Cryptochrome and phototropin are photoreceptors sensitive to blue light and UVA radiation. A wide range of plant responses to blue light and UVA radiation have been known or suspected for a long time. Cryptochrome was the name given initially to the blue light UVA photoreceptor because blue light responses appeared to be prevalent in cryptograms, an old primary division of plants which do not exhibit true flowers and seeds and included ferns, mosses, algae, and fungi. So the old stuff. In addition, the molecular nature of the blue light photoreceptor remained unknown and thus cryptic for many years. However, recent research has established that cryptochromes are found throughout the plant kingdom. The action spectrum for a cryptochrome exhibits two peaks, one in UVA region of 320 to 400 nanometers and one in the blue region of the visible spectrum at 4 to 500 nanometers. The chromophore for cryptochrome is a flavin. The three most common flavins are riboflavin and its two nucleotide derivatives, flavin mononucleotide and flavin adenodinucleotide. Uh, FAD will be important for a Calvin cycle again. The flavins may occur free or complex with protein, in which case they are called flavoproteins. However, those flavins that function as a photoreceptor probably constitute a very small portion of a much larger pool. Both FMN and FAD, for example, are important cofactors in cellular oxidation reduction reactions. Arabidopsis, it's a mustard plant, has two genes for cryptochrome, CRY1 and CRY2, whereas tomato has at least three genes that encode this photoreceptor. Mosses and ferns exhibit two and five genes for the cryptochrome, respectively. Interestingly, the sequence of the CR1 protein is similar to photolyse, photolyase, a unique class of flavoproteins that use blue light to stimulate repair of UV-induced damage to microbial DNA. Oh, isn't that interesting? Photolyases contain two chromophores, one a flavin, FAD, and one a terin. Although the precise nature of the CRY1 chromophore chromophores remains to be determined, it appears that one is fad and the second is likely to be a terran. Cryptochromes are cytoplasmic proteins with a mass of about 75 kDa and together with phytochrome mediate photomorphogenic responses such as photoperiod-dependent control of flowering, stimulation of leaf expansion, and the inhibition of stem elongation. Phototropins, or FOT, are a second class of blue light photoreceptor that was first discovered in the late 1980s. Arabidopsis exhibits two phototropin genes designated FOT1 and FOT2. Like cryptochrome, phototropin is a flavoprotein with two FMN molecules as chromophores. The molecular mass of this photoreceptor is about 120 kilodaltons and is localized to the plasma membrane. Phototropins are not involved in photomorphogenic responses. Analysis of mutants deficient in either FOT1 or FOT2 indicate that these two genes exhibit partial overlapping roles in the regulation of phototropism. Furthermore, phototropins play important roles in optimizing photosynthetic efficiency of plants, such as the regulation of stomatal openings for CO2 gas exchange, as well as chloroplast avoidance movement to protect the photosynthetic apparatus from photoinhibition due to exposure to excess light. The biochemical nature and physiological roles of these blue light UVA photoreceptors are discussed in more detail in Chapter 22. UVB radiation may act as a developmental signal. More recently, a small number of responses, such as anthocyanin synthesis in young Milo seedlings of Sorghum vulgare, and suspension cultures of parsley or carrot cells have been described with an action spectrum peak near 290 nanometers and no action wavelengths longer than about 350 nanometers. These findings would seem to indicate the presence of one or more UVB 280 to 320 nanometer receptors in plants, although the nature of the photoreceptors has yet to be identified with certainty. 
The impact of ultraviolet radiation, especially UVB on plants, is receiving increasing attention because of concerns about the thinning of the atmospheric ozone layer. A reduction in the ozone layer results in an increase in UVB radiation, specifically between 290 and 314 nanometers, which can cause damage to nucleic acids, proteins, and the photosynthetic apparatus, and lead to shorter plants and reduced biomass. The UVB receptor also appears to modulate responses to cytochrome in some systems. Phytochrome in some systems. It has yet to be identified. So this is also important for us because we need to maximize our biomass for harvesting, right? So if we have smaller plants less able to photosynthesize and less able to do to produce major biomass, our remediation uh, proportions will be reduced. Flavonoids provide the myriad flower colors and act as natural sunscreens. Although the plant world is predominantly green, it is also the brilliant colors of floral petals, fruits, bracts, and occasionally leaves that most attracts humans and a variety of other pl animals and plants. These various shades of scarlet, pink, purple, and blue are due to the presence of pigments known as anthocyanins. Anthocyanins belong to a larger group of compounds known as flavonoids. Other classes of flavonoids, including chalcones and orones, contribute to the yellow colors of some flowers. Yet others, the flavones, are responsible for the whiteness of floral petals that without them might appear translucent. The flavonoids are readily isolated and because of their brilliant colors have been known since antiquity as a source of dyes. Consequently, the flavonoids have been extensively studied since the beginnings of modern organic chemistry and their chemistry is well known. The biosynthesis of flavonoids is discussed in chapter 28. Flavonoids are phenylpropane derivatives with a basic C6 to C3 to C6 composition. The most strongly colored of the flavonoids are anthrocyanides and anthrocyanins. Anthrocyanins are the glycoside derivatives of the anthrocyanids. Unlike chlorophyll, the anthrocyanins are water-soluble pigments and are found predominantly in the vacuolar sap. They are readily extracted into weakly acidic solutions. The color of anthrocyanins is sensitive to pH. Both anthrocyanids and anthrocyanins are natural indicator dyes. For example, the color of cyan cyanidin changes from red, acid, to violet, neutral, to blue, alkaline. The deep violet extract of boiled red cabbage will turn a definitively unappetizing blue-green if boiled in alkaline water. Oh, how cool would that be? Anthrocyanins in leaves such as coleus and red-leaved cultivars of maple, acer species, are found in the vacuoles of epidermal cells where they appear to mask the chlorophylls. However, the anthrocyanins absorb strongly between 475 nanometers and 560 nanometers while transmitting both blue and red light. Consequently, the presence of anthrocyanins does not interfere with photosynthesis in the chloroplasts of underlying mesophyll cells. Virtually all flavonoids absorb strongly in the UVB region of the spectrum. Since these compounds also occur in leaves, one possible function of the flavonoids is thought to be protection of the underlying leaf tissues from damage due to ultraviolet radiation. Thus, the accumulation of UVB-absorbing flavonoids acts as a natural sunscreen for plants, green algae, and cyanobacteria. As flower pigments, the flavonoids attract insect pollinators. Many insects can detect ultraviolet light and thus perceive patterns contributed by the colorless flavonoids as well as the colored patterns visible to humans. The synthesis of anthrocyanins is stimulated by light, both UV invisible as well as by nutrient stress, especially nitrogen and phosphorus deficiencies, and low temperature. At least one group of flavonoids, the isoflavonoids, have become known for their antimicrobial activities. Isoflavonoids are one of several classes of chemicals of differing chemical structures known as phytoalexins that help to limit the spread of bacterial and fungal infections in plants. Phytoalexins are general absent or present in very low concentrations, but are rapidly synthesized following invasion by bacterial and fungal pathogens. The details of phytoalexin metabolisms are not yet clear. Apparently, a variety of small polysaccharides, glycoproteins, and proteins of fungal or bacterial origin serves as elicitors that stimulate the plant to begin synthesis of phytoalexins. 
studies with soybean cells infected with the fungus Phytoporphyria porphora indicate that the fungal elicitors trigger transcription of mRNA for the enzymes involved in the synthesis of isoflavonoids. The production of phytoalexins appears to be a common defense mechanism. Isoflavonoids are the predominant phytoalexin in the family leguminosae, but other families such as solanaceae appear to use terpene derivatives. Beta-acinines, beta-cyanins, and beets. The prominent red pigments of beetroot and bougainvillea flowers are not flavonoids, as was long believed, but a more complex group of glycosated compounds known as betalanes and beta-cyanins. Beta-cyanins and the related beta-taxophanes of yellow are distinguished from anthocyanins by the fact that the molecules contain nitrogen. They appear to be restricted to a small group of closely related family in the families in the order Chenopodiales, including goosefoot, cactus, and portulaca families, which are not known to produce anthocyanins. In summary, sunlight provides plant with energies to drive photosynthesis and critical information about the environment. Light is a form of electromagnetic energy and has attributes of continuous waves and discrete particles. The energy of a particle of light, a quantum, is inversely proportional to its wavelength. Sounds a lot like gravity, doesn't it? Inverse relationship based on size. Well, in this case, wavelength. Light is absorbed by pigments, and pigments that absorb physiologically useful light are called photoreceptors. All pigments have a characteristic absorption spectrum that describes the efficiency of light absorption as a function of wavelength. Because only light that is absorbed by pigments can be effective in a physiological or biochemical process, a comparison of absorption spectra with the action spectrum of a process helps to identify the responsible pigment. When light is absorbed, the pigment becomes excited or unstable. The excess energy must be dissipated as heat, remitted as light, or used in a photochemical reaction, thus allowing the pigment to return to its stable ground state. Regular and predictable changes in fluence rate and spectral energy distribution provide plants with information about momentary status of their environment as well as impending changes. The biochemical characteristics of the principal plant pigments of physiological interest are described. So, just for fun, let's do some of the play along at home questions. One, although as Samuel Johnson said, it is not easy to tell what light is, what is it? Describe the various parameters of light and how it can be measured. So we can add a little quantum mechanics in here, right? So we can measure the wavelength of light, but we can also measure what light does, so its effect. So like we learned about in this chapter, maybe it's not necessarily what it is, but the relationships that it causes that actually creates its existence. And that goes back into the Buddhism thing, right? That's why we were talking about the Y series is because of this exact paradigm. So we can measure wavelength, we can measure energy as work done on a system, but we're not necessarily measuring it, we're measuring the relationships that light has on other things, whether that's color, work, um, photo reactions, right? If something happens when exposed to a certain amount of light, uh, and then we don't exactly know what photons are. Like we call them these packets of energy, but that's just a placeholder, right? So how can something be a wave and a particle at the same time? So in the quantum mechanics world, you would say that it is a collapsed wave function, right? So the photon exists as a wave, as all this continuous thing, but when it's measured or when it's put into a relationship with something else, it collapses the wave function and materializes as a thing. And then that thing can become an electron, or um, it can have some sort of effect, like the photoelectric effect on metal, or it does something, right? But the collapse of the wave function and the relationships that come from collapsing that wave function are the important part for its definition. Define, let's see, describe the relationship between an absorption spectrum and an action spectrum. Of what significance is an action spectrum to the plant physiologist? So my understanding with this is that an absorption spectrum is like hydrogen, right? So 
hydrogen as a molecule can absorb up to a whole bunch of energy shells. How it gets from shell to shell is the action spectrum. So it'll, it'll absorb up to a certain amount and then it'll spit out energy. So you'll start getting these excited electrons that just start getting pushed out of the system. Um, and once that happens, it changes its color, right? So you have absorb, 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 and then action is when you start excluding electrons or you start excluding photons uh, or absorbing them. So the action spectrum is what you would actually see in the absorption of a hydrogen molecule. And it may be like in larger molecules that the action spectrum is what would trigger photosynthesis, for example, right? So you have to have a certain amount of energy in the system before you can trigger an excitation or an oxygen reaction that would start something like the Calvin cycle. So that's my understanding of a of an action spectrum. Um, and what significance is the action spectrum to the plant physiology? Well, we would need to know how much energy the plant wants, right? We care about that because of, is this critter um, going to be an understory plant, or is it going to be full sunlight plant, or what does it need to be able to reach that critical threshold for, for photosynthesis, or for Calvin, or Krebs, or like, what is it? What is its metabolic action range? You know, what is the frequency or the quantity of light that is needed for the plant to do something with it? When is a pigment a photoreceptor? And make a list of major plant pigments and identify one or more principal functions of each. So I don't want to do that, but a pigment is a photoreceptor when I think when it can just do something with the light, right? So when it is absorbed, when light is absorbed by a pigment, uh, and then they do something with that light, whether that's to quench that triplet reaction or whether it's to in, you know, start a chlorophyll process or transfer to an organelle or build a sugar, uh, it can absorb the light and then do something with it. Chlorophylls and carotenoids are found predominantly in cellular membranes while anthrocyanins are located in vacuoles. What does this distribution tell you about the chemistry of these pigments? Hmm. So chlorophylls and carotenoids are in cellular membranes and anthrocyanins are located in vacuoles. Well, chlorophylls and carotenoids are directly accessible to the light, whereas vacuoles aren't all the time, right? They're protected within the cell wall. So it would imply that chlorophylls and carotenoids are light-activated photoreceptors, while anthrocyanins may be chemical reactions. So instead of having to be triggered by light, maybe they do something with the chemical reactions associated with those photoreceptors. Assume you're writing a paper in which you report the effects of artificial light on the growth and photosynthesis of plants. How would you describe the light environment so a reader could attempt to repeat your experiments in his or her own laboratory? Well, we would go back to the first section, right? So that's going to be our spectral fluence, our energy fluence, um, the irradiance value of how that's actually hitting our laboratory what light we're using, so is it fluorescent, is it natural, whatever. And then obviously the, you know, the irradiance, how much of it. Our periodicity, right, are we doing 24 hours, are we doing day-night cycles, what's the, what's the periodicity of that, and then also the availability of it to the plant, you know, is the plant vertically growing, horizontally growing, do they have one light per plant, you know, give us the accessibility of how that plant is actually utilizing the light. And describe how light energy is absorbed and dissipated by a pigment. Okay, so I feel like that's a little bit of a rough question because we don't actually know how that works. So, I mean, I could regurgitate, okay, so I'll regurgitate it. So light is electromagnetic energy. That electromagnetic energy requires a pigment uh, of a certain composition to trigger a reaction. So one photon per one macromolecule 
uh, to change that shape of the molecule to create proteins, and then that, that captures the photons, right? So as that protein or macromolecule changes shape, then the photons become electrons or they become part of that uh, reaction. And that reaction is usually a triggering of energy. So then, you know, if you stack the electrons on top of a phosphorus molecule, for example, you can trigger an NADPH reaction. You know, it becomes an oxidized reaction because of those electrons. Or, you know, the electrons get stolen away by water. Or water comes and splits the uh, molecule because of the polar effect of those electrons within the carbon molecule. And if it's a phosphorus molecule and that phosphorus stays together, well, that's what gives us ATP, right? So that's the energy generator that gets split off because of these electrons bombarding the macromolecules. And you need to have a metal like magnesium um, to be able to get the water in and out. So magnesium is the, is the center of absorbing those electrons and then doing the hydrolysis reaction with water or chelating the overall exact uh, reaction to stabilize it into a macromolecule that can then become something else, you know, a protein, for example. And I guess no one really knows why it has to be magnesium. I thought that was really interesting. So magnesium is required for this thing, but it should work with calcium. I mean, calcium is calcium and potassium are really important from our standpoint, like as... Um, like as salt bridges to conduct neural electrical signals. But magnesium is really important for the baseline generation of ATP and the baseline generation of energy that then allows you know the plant to do work. And it's just really interesting because you'd think that you could substitute calcium or whatever you wanted into that system, but no, it has to be magnesium. So there you go. Um, okay, well, uh, we will continue on the magical journey of photosynthesis later on, um, but I did want to go through a review of some basic biochemical principles as part of the P-series because we will be using them in the, in the Phyto handbook as people start thinking about what pilot studies they want to run and what their contamination, of, what their chemicals of concern are. We'll need to look at how the plant physiology fits and supports those goals.